welcome one and all to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Ahoy, Pete. Oh, what the frick? Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 207, Light and Shadows, comes to you now via Upgraded Hitchhiker Probe. And just a bit of fleet news before we launch into the episode. <sighs> Pete, I saw on one of those anti-discovery YouTubes that the show is already canceled and season two is going to be it. Yeah, well, you know, it sucks to be wrong. Wait, Pete, what do you mean? <laughs> uh, that's because, Matt, before this episode even aired this week, on Wednesday, the fourth anniversary of the untimely death of Leonard Nimoy, CBS, CBS All Access, announced the third season renewal of Star Trek Discovery? How can you renew a show that's already been canceled? I'm confused. Is this a causality loop? Pete, this makes me think that maybe, you know, it's one thing if you want to say, I don't like this show because, you know, it's too different from the other shows or it's not my to my taste or whatever. I don't want to pay or whatever it might be. But, Pete, are you suggesting that there's people out there who just make stuff up in order to get clicks? Indeed. Pete, back to real news. The Picard series has a director for the pilot episode. Hanel Culpepper will helm that first episode. She directed Vaulting Ambition in Season 1 and the upcoming 10th episode this season. Uh, this news was broken by The Hollywood Reporter, which notes that the Picard series that we've all been calling Picard still has no title. Yeah, uh, they're, they're inching closer to that. Uh, talk in a second, Matt, about some casting news. Um, also sticking in uh, the Picard end of things for a moment, Jonathan Frakes uh, will also be directing an episode of the Picard series, which TrekMovie.com says is, is expected to start production next month. And uh, links to both of these articles are in the podcast description. And with production expected to start in April, Matt, there are rather detailed, although remains to be seen if they're in code, uh, character descriptions, uh, seven characters in addition to the one character we already know in the Picard series. Uh, making the rounds here for casting, only two would seem to be Starfleet personnel, and actually one would only seem to be active duty. There are references in the descriptions to archaeology. Have no idea how that would connect to uh, Captain Picard. And then, interestingly enough, the youngest character would seem to be a teenage Romulan character. Hey, I'm a young person. He could be a young person character that I could relate to. There's always hope. <laughs> uh, by the way, Pete, we are now halfway through the season, and we are sending out our own red signal. Will you review us on iTunes? I can't review our own show. I would hope other people would. We got three reviews. We'll read you a little later in the episode. Surest way for you to get your words on the episode. Please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. And, of course, another great way to support the podcast is to head over to patreon.com slash fantasticgeek to help us with those storage and bandwidth costs that help. Always appreciate it. 
absolutely, Matt, that uh, Patreon money always comes in helpful for us. Just helped us uh, for the God for Enemy podcast, attend a Paley Center panel, bring that to you. So your contributions help us produce more content. And now for our mission briefing. Above the ringed planet of Kaminar, the personal log of Commander Michael Burnham explains her mother taught her the greatest mysteries come in threes, like birth, life, and death, and the past, the present, and the future. The Red Angel is from the future. They now have confirmation of that because of Saru. The angel wears a humanoid exosuit of future tech. But who's future and why the only person who may be able to answer those questions is the missing Spock and Burnham is packing a bag and bringing her phaser. Thank goodness, Pete, we get this recap at the top of the episode. Make sure everybody is on the same page. Uh, Burnham, after packing that bag, has a conversation with Pike. Pete, it's your classic walk and talk. We're not in the West Wing. We're on Discovery. Uh, noting that uh, Spock had contact with the Red Angel for two months. Maybe his break, his mental break, is uh, from getting information about the future that he could not process, leading to Spock's hospitalization. Uh, and that, then, of course, he broke out and took the shuttle to the Mutara sector. What? I guess he just knows it's a good place to hide, Pete. Uh, Burnham says to Pike that she wants to go to Vulcan. Uh, Pike is not that sure, particularly since uh, Sarek is on the task force. But Mom, Amanda, she has not always seen eye-to-eye with Sarek, so maybe Burnham can get more information from Amanda. And, of course, Burnham wasn't going to leave without permission from Pike, who realizes that she really wants to go, gives the okay. As for Discovery, because Pike realizes we got our main story, we got our B story, although Pete, I think we love them equally here, these two stories. Uh, but as for Discovery, it's going to stay around Kaminar for sensor sweeps as the signal decays. Yes, try to figure out when and where in the future the Red Angel came from. On the bridge, Saru reports to Pike. Sensors have detected the same spike in tachyon particles. Admiral Cornwell's team recorded after Discovery's expedition to the asteroid, you know, that one six episodes ago in the season two premiere. An excited Tilly enters and says the readings, 5,000 parts per cubic micron, can't be accurate. As outside a supernova, no one's ever recorded densities at that level. Freaking amazing. <sighs> Pete, thank goodness she didn't say the other thing because then some people's heads would have exploded. And she knows YouTube videos would be made everywhere. <laughs> uh, luckily, Pete, she knows to, to hold her tongue a bit in these excitable situations. Anyhow, Pete, what could create this sun-like energy? Uh, future tech, we are reminded. Saru decides to launch a probe into the anomaly, or rather, he would if they could fire better. But they're having some trouble, Pete. It happens. Uh, it's time to get the ship closer. 
Tyler arrives upset that no one told him Burnham was leaving. There's even Pete a little moment where he flips his badge, which seems like him just being a flippant young, you know, 31-er. Uh, we're going to loop back to that literally in about 30 seconds. Um, indeed, Pete, we see time start to skip a little bit as we see Tyler and Pike talking again in their moment of badge flipping. My badge is bigger than yours kind of moment. The chair, however, outranks the badge. Uh, comms go offline and tactical systems fail. Uh, the computer seems caught in some kind of loop. And Saru reports that computers don't do well with temporal distortions. And then we see that replayed moment there between Pike and Tyler. Outside the ship, they see a growing rift and the systems start to come back online. The solution, Pike is going to fly a shuttle closer to the anomaly with Tyler helping out on the shuttle. Uh, they turbo lift on down, showing that massive turbo lift chasm that we've discussed from prior episodes. Uh, but inside the turbo lift car, Tyler chides Pike for not keeping him in the loop. And Pike chides back, Voke was the bad shadow, and it looks like he's sticking around. There's no way to get rid of Tyler's Klingon side and Pike knows the feeling as we head to the title card. The credits show special guest star Michelle Yeoh, Pete, Berg, and Harberts have been thoroughly excised from the credit sequence. They have, but maybe more notably for the narrative we're telling now, Matt, change in some of the graphics, the red angel with the mirrored wings which some people had uh had circled images within them at the very tips look like two starships perhaps discovery and the enterprise uh facing off have been replaced now with the exo suit of the red angel which given the events in this episode matt looks an awful lot like arium well, certainly more on that in a little bit. Uh, but I think the short answer is, yeah, probably. Uh, the credits also say that the teleplay is by Ted Sullivan. Pete, that's the marker of a great episode. Story by Sullivan and Vaughn Wilmot. It is directed by Marta Cunningham. Pete, Ms. Cunningham, a veteran of directing episodes like some of your favorite shows, Pretty Little Liars, The Quad, also How to Get Away with Murder, uh, The Bold Type, Fear the Walking Dead, and of course, this episode of Star Trek Discovery. And Pete, uh, on a personal note, she is the spouse of James Frain, our very own Sarek. Over the cityscape of Vulcan, Burnham's shuttle identifies itself and requests permission to land at the residence of Ambassador Sarek on personal business. The shuttle lands in the rain. Inside, Burnham reminisces joining Amanda and Sarek's family, playing three-dimensional chess and laughing at herself being unable to do the Vulcan salute in her straightened bowl cut. Pete, you sound a little incredulous that it can rain on Vulcan. I mean, how do you think plants get moisture? Surely it must rain from time to time. So many anti-discovery YouTube videos this week will be about rain on Vulcan. Furthermore, Pete, that's your classic pathetic fallacy where the weather is reflecting the mood of a character or the mood of a scene and it's setting up kind of audience mood expectations. It, Pete, gotta rain sometimes even on the old red planet of Vulcan there. Uh, the takeaway, though, as she reflects back to uh, 
trying to make that Vulcan symbol with young Spock. They are both struggling with emotion. Back in the present day, Amanda is glad that Burnham is home, and Sarek is meditating, practicing Tukmar, as one does. Uh, it is meant to bring lost souls home, but it isn't working. Burnham thinks she knows why and sees her mother, mother's uh, hidden anger remains. Still, Mom is not going to fess up anything. There's no way she would ever turn him in for crimes he didn't commit. Hashtag fugitive reboot, Pete. Think about it. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't Spock. It was the one-armed Gorn. <laughs> Amanda is visibly nervous and says she hasn't heard from Spock, but Burnham sees through it. If Sarek can't contact Spock, there has to be a reason, and Amanda knows what it is. Like you said, not going to turn her over. Tried for these murders. She knows he did not commit. Um, she's told Burnham the truth her whole life, and that's how she knows she's lying. Spock is not how Burnham remembers him. Back on Discovery, Pike takes the shuttle closer and closer still. Tilly warns these time divers about time bends. Saru asks Pike for uh, to prepare to fire the probe, and uh, he acknowledges via temporal distortions. The shuttle is told to make a full stop. There's an effect shot about 20 seconds later that shows it's still moving. Hey, everyone makes mistakes. Uh, Pike at this point looks to the back of the shuttle, sees flashes of a future where he is shooting Tyler. Yeah, interesting how they seeded that, particularly in a time travel-ish episode here. Um, he doesn't communicate this to Tyler, of course, you know, because they're having uh, issues. Uh, Awosikan uh, warns Pike of a temporal shockwave heading toward the shuttle, and they are lost in the rift. Saru, in a brief moment, he sees seems unsure, uh, particularly as Detmer says they cannot get closer. But uh, Saru quickly, you know, takes control, changes the mission from one of uh, of uh, discovery to recovery and rescue. Saru gives even-headed orders for Owo to scan manually, for Reese to try and filter out anomalies. Those anomalies could be the shuttle. Saru says to find them could be impossible, but luckily they have a time-proof lad on board that, of course, the uh, tardigrade-infused Stamets. We also get a story clock, Matt. Tilly says irradiation will be lethal in five hours. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Stamets, having used the tardigrade DNA in the other time travel story that uh, Ted Sullivan wrote in season one, the Harry Mud uh, magic to make the sanest man go mad, uh, seated in this story as well. Hashtag it's all Ted Nected. Back on Vulcan, Burnham shuttle lands outside a shrine. Inside, a whispering Spock is obsessively repeating the first doctrines of logic. What, Matt? Episode 7 and we finally see Spock? I thought we were going to see him in the first scene, said five YouTube videos angrily. <laughs> uh, we get an act break, then Spock continues to mutter as he sits around a glossy crystalline uh, idic symbol. Uh, Amanda says that he's been like this for two days. He keeps repeating the number 841947. Burnham says that he must get to a hospital. Amanda declines and says she isn't going to give up her son. She has diplomatic immunity that can't be revoked, except dramatic reveal, says Sarek, by him. 
yes, the numbers, Amanda says, are also not coordinates, not command codes, nor birthdays. Back in the shuttle, sensors are useless. Tyler and Pike continue to spar verbally. Pike gives Tyler the stick. They see the red signal that brought them to Kaminar because they are being pulled back in time. They could be trapped for all eternity if the rift closes. Pike orders Tyler to release Plasma Burst, but they need the fuel. Tyler tells Pike his decisions are motivated by guilt of having sat out the war. He tells Tyler he'll release the plasma or he'll throw him in the brig when they get back and they will get back to the ship. Back on the Discovery, Pete Stamets is tasked with using the mycelial network as a constant, like finding a speck of sand in a hurricane with a pair of tweezers. If you didn't get enough metaphor, Pete, this is a really difficult thing to do. Back to Vulcan we go. Sarek has decided that Spock is in the crypt due to the Kotra crystals, which block that attempted link. Amanda talks about her worst fear, Spock's difficulties, human difficulties, learning, reading, writing, Latokterai, it is called, which was remedied at the learning center, or was it? Amanda notes that he didn't get help. He was the half-Vulcan boy who was dirtied by his mother. Reading Alice in Wonderland was the centering force, as it was the children who were on both sides of the mirror, not Sarek. Uh, Sarek reminds her that uh, he does like humans after all, but uh, she suggests that she has always been second place to him, even as wife and partner. That he would have never left Vulcan for them the way that she sacrificed for their family. Sarek points out uh, that that doesn't change the fact she has harbored a fugitive, their son, a flagrant abuse of his authority. But she reminds him she is his wife, his partner, and does not live under his authority. You go, Amanda. Try again, husband. Then Spock is mouthing Alice in Wonderland. Sarek sees his son as regressing. Burnham says that she thinks all of this is related to the Red Angel. That's right, keeping us on plot track there. Sarek's solution to Spock needing help. Burnham will deliver him to Section 31. Indeed, it is 31 that is most motivated beyond anyone else to heal Spock and get to the bottom of it all. Further, Burnham's career will be at stake if she doesn't complete the mission. And now, of course, she can. Sarek, in a wonderfully acted moment by James Frain says that he will not lose both children today. Back in the shuttle, plasma levels are down to 30%, shields to 23 as they're circling closer to the aperture of the rift. As Tyler and Pike argue, their probe returns with an unexpected upgrade, wrapping the shuttle in tentacles. Indeed, Pete, the old squiddy upgrade. Uh, we get an act break, then Burnham's shuttle is approaching NCIA-93. Giorgio is impressed uh, that Burnham used her own mother to get to Spock. Uh, it seems that they're all ready to heal Spock's mind, uh, fix those neural links. Leland is very affable in this scene. He, he excuses the medical person as well as Giorgio. Leland knows this is painful to Burnham, promises to get to the bottom of it all. He's very, very earnest. Can Burnham share any more? She talks a little bit about Latokterai, which he says, oh yes, that's not unlike dyslexia. For all of you at home, now you have a better context. 
he seems to suggest. Um, Burnham is told that her leave has been extended, but she can't stay here. He sends her off to Starbase 23 so that she can rest. Uh, indeed, she can best care for Spock if she takes care of herself. Uh, with that, uh, Burnham gives Spock a hug, holds his hand, and she reflects on the numbers literally. Wait a minute, the numbers are reflected backwards. On Discovery, Reese has found residual traces of three deuterium plasma burns that he thinks are the captain. An old trick they taught them in flight school to alert search parties. Stamets calculates the position using corresponding coordinates within the mycelium network. Tilly, however, can't follow. One plasma burn looks like it happened a week ago, one yesterday, and one eight minutes from now. Non-lineal temporal progression is a mind vendor. That it certainly is. On the shuttle, the probe's tentacles are worming their, uh, their way in. They get Tyler, and at the rear of the shuttle, Pike shoots it off him. Whew. Uh, but a piece still jumps into the, uh, the front part there of the shuttle, uh, scanning everything and knocking both men down. Back to Discovery, Tilly and Stamets are making their way to the transporter room. She'll have to manually change the targeting as they approach the triangulation zone. She's going to beam him in and out of time. She wanted to send a pad, but he urges her to trust the math, to trust herself. He wouldn't just let anyone beam him in and out of time. Stamets materializes on the shuttle 10 minutes from now. To get them out of the anomaly, Discovery picks up a visual on the probe with the upgraded hitchhiker trying to kill them and searching their computers. Arium reports the probe is searching the computers at incredible speed and she will attempt to lock it out. Stamet moves the shuttle away from the rift, but their plasma runs out and they're adrift. Pete, at this moment of great tension, we go back to the 31 ship. Uh, Pete, I, I dare say NCIA 93 doesn't quite uh, roll off the tongue, so I'm sticking with 31 ship. Giorgio has uh, turned off the cameras for 60 seconds uh, and says that the medical technique that's going to be used on Spock will actually strip him of his memories and kill him. The solution is that Burnham has to attack Giorgio, then rescue Spock. That will make Leland look bad, which is good for Giorgio. With that, they fight, and it is a good fight, Pete. They're on with their show there, and the cameras catch it. Michelle Yeoh is a badass, Matt, but Burnham knocks her into a screen and out. Back to the shuttle with Pike and the group. Uh, they have 34 seconds to get off. Stamets is going to manually beam them away while Tyler tries to knock out the probe. Owo gets them out just as the shuttle is destroyed. Uh, there is a data breach, and it seems to hop to Arium. Her eyes flash red like an angel. Pete, more on that in a little bit. Yes, the three red dots there, causing her to pause for a moment as she responds to Saru's question, indicating the shuttle's crew is safely back aboard. Burnham bursts into the room where Spock is being held and stuns two people. Giorgio shows up and just misses her with a phaser blast before the door closes and they leave in a shuttle. On this, the Discovery Bridge, Pike thanks everyone for saving their lives. But there's a time tsunami on the way. Detner is going to warp them away and does just in time. I hope, Pete, the Kaminar is safe. 
Um, Pike, however, is happy to be back in his chair and thanks Tyler for all of his efforts. Uh, and Tyler may have been right about Pike's motivations. Pete, I hope Pike doesn't do anything crazy in the future. Um, as for Saru's analysis on the probe's attack, uh, they're still working on that. Why? Um, the search continues. Uh, perhaps the probe and Red Angel are linked. One thing is for sure, they're in the middle of a fight for the future as the camera lingers on Arium. And we see the three red dots again, and so does Arium. Leland calls Georgiou out for letting Burnham go. He warns her not to overestimate her value, but he needs her to keep Burnham from finding out the truth. That Leland killed her biological parents. Well, or that at the very least PT is responsible for it. Killed. Let's save that for the theory segment. <laughs> she tells him he's no longer calling the shots. Three identical Section 31 ships move beyond sensor range as Spock continues to repeat the numbers. Burnham has the computer search the database for the reversed sequence for a match. Working, working. It's a planetary system located at 749 Mark 148 Talos 4. Have you ever heard of that, Matt? Am I allowed to talk about that without fear of Federation death penalty? Pete, I don't know the status of General Order 7 at the moment, so please do note that we have heard of this place before, I think. Burnham sets a course. What are you taking us to, Spock? Pete, just as we warp to Talos 4, threat analyses coming in fast and furious. Let us start with Amanda. I really, really dig the performance here out of Mia Kirshner, this steely spine here. Um, the, the one communication we had with, uh, with a listener on uh, Twitter, Matt, that they were trying to polite each other to death during this very Vulcan uh, marriage spat. I think, too, earlier in that scene, um, it it requires Kirshner's acting, but also the shot choice and the camera close up on her hands to show those kind of fiddly fingers. That's your that's your moment of guilt. You know, if this was done on stage, and obviously not in a Star Trek setting, it would be wiping the brow and guilt and shifting the eyes. And, you know, Amanda is, of course, much more emotionally restrained. She feels those emotions, but doesn't show them. So you need that kind of, you know, she can't sit there and be like the, the, the twitchy CSI informant who, you know, you know is ready to spill the goods or whatever. It needed to be communicated through acting and through the camera, and they did a wonderful job. A human tiger mom, if you will, Matt, bending the law to uh, keep her son safe. We can all identify with that, but puts her in the wrong from a legal standpoint and puts her husband in hot water as far as stretching these uh, diplomatic immunities. Also, too, I suppose we need to have Spock on this list in that there still is the question of the people who who may or may not have died at his hand and also just the the threat of the Red Angel that he has some knowledge of. Lots of question marks there. Pete, I think he's going to be okay career-wise when this is all said and done, but in the interim, some threat from him. 
with Ethan Peck at long last joining the series, you know, uh, the um, announcement made in the fall. And uh, we got to see the first appearance of uh, Ethan Peck uh, since he had been cast as Spock at New York Comic Con and the gravitas that the grandson of the great uh, Gregory Peck brings to this role. Here we see him disturbed between repeating the numbers, the first doctrines of logic, uh, the inappropriate laughing, the flashbacks to child Spock as well, informing, getting us closer to the bond that Burnham built with him, but still not seeing where it broke. Something I can imagine is going to rear its head next week. We also have clearly as a threat this uh, upgraded probe that uh, initially, Pete, I think upgraded probes, you know, I think V'ger and things like that. I also think, you know, other technology from the future, uh, which we've had glimpses of this season on Discovery. Um, or at the very least, it's just a giant, you know, space metal sea squid out to uh, destroy the, the submarine here. That it's 500 years and not a hundred or 50 uh, sets it at an end point way past anything we've seen before as far as uh, regular narrative on Star Trek shows. Indeed, Matt kind of puts us in like Enterprise J time, potentially. Um, now not the furthest out we've ever gone. You consider the uh, the short treks uh, canonical. Uh, we've been a thousand years to the future with discovery. Pete, also a very interesting threat in this episode, I suppose is Leland, uh, the warmth and affability that he shows, uh, in that <laughs> sparse medical room, you know, in the medical fix em up, uh, chair room. I'm sure that's the technical term. Uh, it, it kind of took me by surprise, uh, that, amount of emotion has not been asked for from the actor in this show thus far. And it was like, okay, yeah. And then back of my head, I'm like, and maybe Leland is the number two actor on the section 31 show. Maybe they're setting that up and giving him some more range. Then to have Giorgio, who I think none of us trust intimately and all of us want to keep at an arm's length in terms of giving her trust as a character, but we get that she's the anti-hero. We get that she's the badass, and we kind of want to trust her perspective more than that of Leland. For her to say, no, this is all a lie. This is all a scam. Continue to not trust him. It was just wonderful character shading, and I leave this episode saying, yeah, he's a bigger threat than I thought he was. Yeah, it remains to be seen just how large, but that this conspiracy reaches back into uh, Burnham's childhood. Indeed, the thing that makes her the most who she is really interesting. Pete, let's take things to long range sensors. First, Pete, lots of, lots of chatter online. Will Pike visit Talos four for the first time? Ask a number of fans who don't realize that the cage story happened two years ago. Yeah, as I speak to a guy who doesn't watch the previews. That, that is true. And your statement, I wish I had the exact text in front of me. I could probably get it pretty quickly. You had said, good luck avoiding the spoilers for next week. Words to that effect. 
Um, I take that challenge on and I take it seriously. Um, As I prepare to send them to Matt. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> but uh, if nothing else, Pete, just a reminder, the cage, the, you know, the cage happened two years ago. That is canonical with a capital C. It's in the Star Trek chronology, blah, blah, blah. The, uh, the menagerie, of course, happens during the Kirk era, blah, blah, blah. And that's in the future. But Pike's visit and being trapped there and looking for the Columbia and all of that, it already happened. Not every cage is a prison, nor is every loss eternal, Matt. We're getting closer and closer to the events that will lead Pike to the BB chair. Um, another thing, certainly we must discuss for long-range sensors, this theory, Arium as the Red Angel. I think it's looking better now than ever, particularly since Discovery, the show, tends to work in slightly shorter, slightly more predictable arcs. That's not a slam, but they kind of, they don't ever usual suspects you with like, surprise, you didn't know this. They kind of give you a little, little warning as you head into a major revelation. I mean, that image of the Red Angel from last week's episode has been so intensely and then comically poured over. You know, I myself on Twitter have shared images of it being Patrick Stewart in a in a lobster costume or um, Riker in the dumb uh, jujitsu costume from The Next Generation. Uh, first of all, it wasn't dumb. It was a way to fight his dad and work out his demons with the glow stick. Okay, it was dumb. Um, well, Pete, what is your what is your prediction then? Coming off of this episode, is Arium the best known choice to be the Red Angel? I think so. What remains to be seen is why this probe of seeming ill intent would uh, have the signal with the three red dots inside it and create the red angel who was there to prevent these catastrophes, these causality loops, Matt, they are, they are confusing. Pete, listen, you're just not thinking fourth dimensionally. I know you're the Tilly in this situation and I'm the Stamets. Just look at the board. Stop seeing grated Parmesan. It'll all make sense if you keep working with it. Uh, On to another topic, Pete. We had wondered a few weeks ago if the show would explore more of Vulcan culture. What do you make of those Vulcan masks in the family crypt? Indeed, Matt. I've uh, gone back and watched some... Uh, Star Trek Enterprise or just Enterprise, if we're going to keep it first season. Um, and the Katra stones first appear there, uh, you know, this at a time, that at a time when uh, the, the Katras were kind of controversial amongst Vulcans during um, Captain Archer's era and the uh, the Cyrenites and all the controversy there so are these sarek's parents spock's grandparents perhaps moving on pete did leland outright kill burnham's parents or merely contribute to it uh indirectly or circumstances or allow it to happen etc i think georgiou in speaking with him has very little motivation to lie she wants to uh, sideline him. She wants control for whatever 
ulterior motives we're not clear on, who knows? But I think the affability of his, um, you know, appearance towards Burnham and the ultimate secret that he not only uh, sanctioned, if not did the deed himself. Uh, what other theories do you have? Well, so when is the Red Angel from? We know the probe is from 500 years in the future. There are metals on it that are not in the periodic table that Tyler points out. The core has aged 500 years. But the Red Angel from the future, if Arium is the Red Angel, the Red Angel really from their time upgrading itself with knowledge and or parts from the future. So again, the, the confusion, the, the snake eating its tail. It would be an interesting story revelation if instead of it being, and it's from the Picard series or, Oh, it's somehow connected to, uh, to the Calypso episode or it's the enterprise J. If it was just like, no, there was, there's this weirdo, time loop thing and we're going to see Arium enter it and then Arium go to the future and like it's all kind of self-contained in a weird way that's not necessarily like the time mission Star Trek time mission 500 years from now like that's not it it's just it starts on discovery and ends with discovery that would be an interesting way to say hey what has the first half of the season been it's been a story MacGuffin that's it and along the way we've gotten to know characters better and put them through fun adventures and et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to it is a means to an end. The show has steadily been featuring Arium more and more. We get that really great shot last week uh, of her head in the foreground um, in the science lab as Burnham and Tilly were trying to figure out uh, the, the background on Kaminar via the um, – the the, uh, the the sphere that they had in uh, what was that episode four, um, and you also had the casting change, Matt, from season one to two. Uh, Sarah Midich played Arium in season one. She is still on the show. She plays Lieutenant Nilsson, but Hannah Cheeseman has taken over the role of Arium. You got to wonder if, you know, in addition to the the prosthetic uh, acting ability, much like a Doug Jones, perhaps this was with some kind of future costuming, pun intended, involved. And just to clarify, uh, Midich's Lieutenant Nilsson uh, thus far has only appeared in, uh, in the first episode of the second season. So perhaps... I will infer maybe that was a bit of a swan song for the actress, maybe whether it's moving on to other opportunities or not wanting to be encased in, in, you know, a ton of latex, uh, whatever it might be. Um, but you're right. We've gotten more of Arium this season. And again, I want to make it clear. It's not a criticism from me that the show sometime, the flavor of the show is to, to let you start to dawn on these revelations a little early Think of the mirror mirror universe stuff. We had, you know, midpoint before we before they uh, went to that other universe. There was, you know, hey, maybe we can check other universes, parallel universes. Really planting those seeds along the way. Where are we? I don't know. It's a different universe, and and so on and so forth. So I think here it's a really really good bet, Arium as the Red Angel, because 
the show is slowly bringing up her prominence. So it's not this jarring uh, reveal. Yeah. To its credit, Discovery does not take hard left turns. They kind of preview where they're going. And I love baked into this formula are these mysteries that don't linger forever. Vok, the mirror universe. Now this guessing game with the Red Angel, it only adds to the discussion around this show and gives people something to podcast about. (laughs) Any other theories, Pete? The Mutara sector, Matt, that Spock went and hid in, of course, a shout out to Star Trek to the Mutara Nebula. But like how many important moments has this dude spent in this particular sector? <laughs> uh, I mean, to me, it's one of these things where are we going to fall on the side of, boy, it's it's an unusually small universe or is it a fun shout out? And eh, it's a fun shout out to me. I kind of don't read much more into that. Yes, he's crossed paths with it a few times. I mean, look, we all have these weird moments of serendipity where you say, thank goodness I had to X because years later I used it out of the blue. Um, maybe two for Spock and uh, and the Mutara Nebula. The switches in the uh, Discovery shuttle, Matt, very, very close scrutinization reveals uh, Easter eggs throughout to almost all of the previous series in the Star Trek canon. Yes, you blew my mind when you sent me that uh, that screenshot there uh, on that panel of glorious flippy buttons and pushy buttons. Uh, some of the knobs and dials and whatnot are labeled. Uh, one is ENT, ENT, there's VOY, there's DS9, there's TNG. Um, it probably would be a bridge too far to read some of the other ones and try and theorize J-A-U, J-S, or J-B. Uh, maybe it's J-P, Jean-Luc Picard, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> M-M, again, probably a bridge too far at this point. Um, but certainly the most prominent ones, really fun. Uh, little you know, shout-outs to Treks of the past and future. Boy, thank goodness in a shorter episode, Matt, we, we get some uh, some Easter eggs. Shorter episode, Pete, I complained bitterly in the first season about episodes that were way short, particularly, uh, you know, we had an episode or two similar to the runtime of this episode that were nominally past 40 minutes, but you remove the end credits, you remove the uh, opening titles and under 40 minutes. However, Pete, no complaint in this episode. Ted Sullivan and uh, the other guy turning in a solid episode here, chock full of action, intercutting between multiple storylines, emotional stuff, action stuff, theoretical stuff. Uh, If I don't know how long the original script was, I'd be interested to know. You know, generally it's a minute per page. was a ton of stuff cut for budget? Was this always just going to be a tight, shorter episode? Whatever it is, this episode works splendidly at its runtime, and I would not add a minute more uh, for fear that it would uh, slow things down. Yeah, really taught production, Matt. And I don't think it can be, um, you know, glossed over that the day that the day before when we get renewed for season three and then this episode airs in which uh, 
Harberts and Berg are scrubbed from the credits, and we now know that Michelle Paradise will be elevated to co-showrunner for season three. Indeed. I mean, this is an episode of, of uh, well, I said it before, of serendipity. Uh, great story. Out with the old, in with the new. Just a you know, fantastically deep episode within the moment. Great character stuff. And uh, this is some great Star Trek. What is the probe looking for? I think the probe is looking for its origin and part of the reason it's searching through it has spent all this time i will imagine in the time rift um perhaps alone perhaps it's developed a proto sentience and uh it's been lonely pete much like the uh calypso short trek much like wally and you know here it, it in the process of uh, of running this search it finds a familiar uh perhaps you know hazy past uh of its own origin and to me that kind of lends itself to this loop of its search its past finding arium i don't know all the pieces but i feel like it's i feel like there's an arc that i'm seeing just the, the beginning curve of and it's starting to make sense Giorgio tells burnham she knows more about her than she can imagine is this mirror universe stuff and other burnham is this prime universe burnham matt is this time travel stuff uh i did not read it as time travel stuff i i kind of heard that line and said i think this is a a watch this space kind of moment you know like something's going to happen here but we're leaving enough wiggle room to say because i know the nice Giorgio, and i'm going to appeal to your better angels or because I've seen the worst Giorgio compared to the best one, and I know not to trust you. Uh, I don't think, for example, say, unlike Arium has red flashes in her eyes, we're really leaning towards something. I think this is more the beginning of, okay, in a later episode, are we going to lean left? Are we going to lean right? We're not quite sure, or we don't want to commit in this episode, in part because we're committing to other things, uh, but we're we're starting. Tyler got a boo-boo courtesy of the probe's tentacles. Time wound? On Kronos, they wouldn't even bandage this. Um, Pete, listen, time wounds may hurt the heart, but that Do doesn't make it Do they heal hurt. all wounds in time? Uh, in time, yes. However, if it starts to get pussy or looking discolored, I don't know what discolored is for... Klingon bodies turned into human bodies so you know whether it's green whether it's orange whether it's blue I don't know listen don't be too proud to go on down to Doc Pollard okay have her clean that out with a little cotton swab some alcohol put a little I don't know uh Betty Boop band-aid on it and don't be too proud Tyler and listen everybody else out there take care of yourselves and now that we're heading back to Talos Q uh q he heading back to cali by uh, ll cool j matt um the death penalty in place for people who even mention talos for no wonder spock had to spit out the coordinates in reverse well listen you are probably right however pete even this morning when i was uh 
having a little alone time. I was looking through the Star Trek chronology, as I oftentimes do. And uh, yes, there's General Order 7. No vessel under any condition, emergency or otherwise, is to visit Talos 4. Again, Pete, I think for many fans who who have internalized the story of the menagerie as later than this, let's not forget that the cage portion of it, uh, the flashback portion of it, is prior to what we're seeing in Discovery. So yes, the Enterprise has already been there. It is definitely reasonable to assume that what Memory Alpha has, that that this policy, General Order 7, was, was following that visit two years ago, 2254, um, that that policy is in place. Is there a little story wiggle room in terms of the Enterprise just got back recently, so maybe this policy is being put together? Uh, I think there is some story wiggle room there, which would be interesting to play with. But for sure, Talos Four in the third quadrant of the Vernal Galaxy has been visited. Um, but the only Earth ship that has visited it is the USS Enterprise, as I read some of the text here of General Order 7. So... Pete, let's keep an eye out for uh, Robert L. Comsol, commanding officer of Starfleet Command, whose name is at the bottom of General Order 7. Maybe we'll see the 1960s era red binder with three hole punches. Probably not. <laughs> um, but we are playing in a very interesting place. And we've speculated, Pete, you know, do they go back and do kind of reshoots or reinterpretations or maybe very uh you know close to the original interpretations of of scenes or episodes or that sort of thing i was tempted to watch the preview based on how this episode ended but i didn't you're missing do it. out you're missing out matt let's just say that my head is throbbing with possibilities well well okay i i, I will remain on the steady course i will embrace the logic of of enjoying the episode when no cbs all access whatsoever with that, let's go to Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. Pete, let us start, as we always do, with the poll ran on Twitter. The question with Star Trek Discovery wrapping up for the week, is your brain a-throbbing? Are you repeating hashtag the numbers? What did you think of tonight's episode? Your four choices? Four stars, General Order 7. Three stars, Sneaky 31ers. Two stars, Tough Probe. One star, Out of Deuterium. Pete, somebody who doubtless didn't see the episode, gave it a vote for one star. 2% right. said two stars. 16% uh, said three stars. And a very healthy 78% gave it four stars. Yeah, and like we indicated before, the, the trajectory being really clear, can't wait to see this episode next week we had a tweet from andre yeager that's at dr polo 1983 who said thank goodness we finally have spock now it's going to get really interesting uh and we had a bunch of tweets from the very thoughtful very wise annie harrington that's at any time left uh first one pete she says i'm interested to see what happens with talos 4 I think Pike will have to end up going too, so that the context of him ending up there in the future makes it more of a happy ending. Maybe he'll see and bond with that, quote, woman again. I need to rewatch the menagerie and ponder this. Yeah, there, I think there are a lot of people going back and checking it out. Um, from the moment that Pike was announced in this second season, People have really speculated, are we going to see the events that lead him to the chair? And I think it's a matter of inevitability now that we've brought the Telosians in officially 
Alex Kurtzman and Matt did name check them at New York Comic Con. We were there and then kind of just left that there. Um, I think, too, we also have a bit retconning. And I mean that without any sort of snark. Um, the idea that he, that he, Pike, sat out the war. Now he's doing more daring things. Um, in my mind, too, you know, this rescue that uh, in his future that exposes him to the gamma rays and, and leads to his disfigurement. Um, I think we can kind of softly say, you know, not only is he a great leader and wants to save people and whatnot, but it's like he's going to jump for that extra bit because he did sit out the war. Uh, anyhow, Annie goes on to say, thinking about Giorgio, I think there has to be some genuine humanity in her. She can't be plain evil. Otherwise, they wouldn't build a future Trek show around her. I'm inclined uh, to believe her this time, I guess, conflicted, fascinated. Yeah, uh, cue the hissing. I, I know somebody, there was somebody else on Twitter not replying to, to us, you know, was saying, all this Section 31 stuff, it's not optimistic, this is not Star Trek, blah, blah, blah. It's like, hold on, we live in, first of all, Star Trek has explained in other shows how Section 31 works, and we live in a real world where, you know, Pete, I wish there weren't, I wish there wasn't, you know, CIA black sites, but there are, and I hope that they're being used to keep people safe. And I'm sure terrible things go on there. Tough choices need to be made. We live in a safe world. I hope those bad places contribute to a better world and not a worse one. I don't know, but Star Trek world is always supposed to be our world just through a lens of science fiction or a lens of how we can be better or whatever. It's not supposed to be everything is great all the time. Section 31 being dark is also only one interpretation. This is an intelligence gathering and threat analyzing organization as well. So let's not make it that this is, you know, all dark stuff. I like that you highlight that. Like Section 31 drawing people who feel that they're on the fringes of the Federation ideal. I mean, that makes me think of another genre. It's like a Western. You know, these are the cowboys and cowgirls who can't handle it in the big city but they need the freedom of something else so sheriff Giorgio, sheriff Giorgio, boom um continuing with annie uh did you hear that familiar red alert sound on the section 31 ship uh i'm a huge sucker for fan service things uh i had not caught that but i asked her I pete did. and i'll ask you did you hear the overloading engine sound on the shuttle i heard both boom um continuing with some tweets pete we have a tweet from karen chu that's at karen chu she keeps it nice and logical. Holy cow, what a ride and a Vulcan marriage fight that was like, I will polite you to death. <laughs> I think you had referenced this earlier, Pete. Sure, Joe and Michael are, are an interesting pair. Um, and then she says, oh, and WTH just happened to Arium. Hopefully, Pete, Karen has a better understanding now that she's listening to the podcast. Yeah, and uh, Vulcan marriage counseling must be like the, the most interesting thing ever. Uh, Karen also says, OMG, it just dawned on me that Michael is doing what Spock is going to do 10 years in the future. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Pete, there was a couple of tweets here from uh, Michelle, ML Huber writes, and um, I had asked her for a little more clarification. I said, not, not exactly picking a fight, just wanted to understand her perspective better. She said, uh, the episode was a little heavy on the exposition, but I loved it. Also, I'm sort of conflicted about the revelations about Spock. 
I love it because I have slash had similar educational difficulties, but also wonder if that retcons Spock too much in comparison to how he is in TOS. Uh, I just meant that Spock never said or suggested he had issues with reading and writing when he was a child. It seems like uh, if that had been part of his character all along, we, uh, we would have known. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have said retcon, but it was the only word I could think of to use. Pete, I don't think retcon is a bad word. Let's start there. I think when you reveal stuff about somebody's past that wasn't previously there, that's a retcon. Right. We're also applying uh, human psychological ideas to a half Vulcan, half human. We don't know where in the Vulcan animus there might be some idea of not talking about these things. Let's remember, too, Spock is eventually going to uh, throw the soup that the nice nurse who has a crush on him makes for him when he's going through uh, Vulcan heat. Yes, which which is a great reminder to everybody that he continues to struggle with his half Vulcan, half human identity for his you know for, for much of his entire life that we, that we have seen um you know some of it is downplayed by leonard nimoy there's one episode who can't remember which one it was off the top of my head but you know he has a moment of conflict his back is to the camera he is facing kirk speaking very calmly but you see his you know him making a fist or him squeezing whatever he's holding or that kind of thing showing that conflict I think of some of the stuff in the classic trek movies where you know, the, the re-education back on Vulcan and, and all of that. Um, was Let's that... think, too, about the episode Spock's Brain. <laughs> Do we have to think about that episode, Pete? Oh, um, <laughs> But I, I think that, it, you know, if we say, have they retconned Spock having a learning disability and that doesn't show up later on, to put it like that, okay, maybe. Have we... Have they retconned that Spock is having difficulty reconciling the two halves of his personality? Yes. And and I think into that we can put a childhood learning disability or or things of that sort. Uh, a couple more tweets here, Pete. One from James. It's at Big Killin'. The show is simply epic. Disco rises above all other TV. It not only does justice to the Trek universe, it takes us beyond its contemporaries. Example, I would not have thought this series would be more interesting than The Expanse. This is what Gene couldn't get past censors. What, Matt? To to lavish such praise on what YouTubes have called <laughs> not Gene's Trek, misspelling the word Gene. Um, and, a, and I think there's a Z in there as well for like, you know, edginess. Uh, well, James just gets it. He does. Last uh, tweet here, or rather a series of tweets from JT Atkins. That's at JTA is me. I feel another timeline is coming on, and I'm okay with that. Somewhere this season, teenage Jim Kirk shows up and dies saving Pike from the wheelchair and the bleep and bloop new series created. Just another one of those infinite combinations. Also, if anyone's confused, do what I did and watch the last 15 minutes again. Big help. It's good advice. Pete, what feedback do you have? Over on the Fantastic Geek Facebook page, Matt Fred had uh, responded to our post from last week, adding, 
about head shooters here. Did anyone notice that last week's episodes of Star Trek Discovery and the Orville both had unexpected hidden head shooters? Both aired February 21st. Pete, I personally have chosen not to watch the Orville. It's not because I hate it. It's not because it's Gene's Trek or not Gene's Trek or whatever. It's just, it's not a show that's on my radar. I know you have, you enjoyed the first season. Uh, I love that Fred and other people are watching both shows, enjoying both shows, and finding some commonalities. I think both sit at the table of, uh, of trying to emulate great Star Trek. I have watched both, although I'm significantly behind on the Orville. I hadn't uh, watched last season's finale, and I have not watched any of season two just yet. Need to get going on that. John Stewart, Matt, also writes in, Here is my totally wrong prediction for the Red Angel's identity, Captain Sisko. He is, after all, a being living outside of time, maybe... He is attending to important profit business. Fred, I totally agree with you on the unnecessary spinny camera thing. It was obnoxious. The only thing that makes me think it couldn't be Cisco is that angel hawk. Come on, Matt. (laughs) The only thing is I, you know, you look at Avery Brooks declining to be involved uh, in any way with the, uh, the Deep Space Nine documentary. He appears to have put his Star Trek time behind him in a big way. I'm not even sure, Pete, like, you know, how often he is at conventions. I think it's a super rare thing, if if at all. So I feel like, unlike a lot of these other people who, you know, either make their vocation or, or make some extra bucks continuing to circle back to the world of Star Trek... I have to wonder if he would come back to play Cisco the Red Angel at any price. Um, I think you also there also could be a separate kind of story discussion. Would you be best served if it's that versus something that's completely kind of uh, you know from the Discovery world universe, whatever you want to say, you know, something out of Discovery versus a Star Trek connection. Um, but that's a separate issue. But I love it as a theory. It would be so great to see him uh, just you know walk out of the. The, the the red lens flare and say you know hey old man my uh response to john was uh ooh maybe he perfected his goofy bajoran solar sailor and john responded i mean how much fun would it be to see avery brooks again he's crazy but he's awesome that he is mary jane dizak also writes in matt the green light has finally been turned on since a co-showrunner was named at the same time. It seems that the holdup was due to problems with the upper level of the show's management. I counted over 20 producers of various sorts listed in the title credits. That is way too many. I M O I'm hoping that Kurtzman and paradise will click and make disco the best show, the very best show it could be. It is blessed with an outstanding cast, and they've carried the story so far. I've loved it, but it has the potential of being out of this world fantastic. And Matt, she spelled fantastic with a PH. Boom. I am not in a position to say 
are there, you know, do they have too many producers? Uh, to be fair, some of the people listed there, like Rod Roddenberry and his uh, producing partner, to my knowledge, that is a vanity credit. That is to get the Roddenberry name out there. I'm not aware of them having any impact in the, you know, day to day, week to week, month to month running of the show. Um, but that's other shows too. I mean, Pete Michael Crichton had a had an executive producer credit on ER for its entire run. He was dead for some of it. So just to give you a sense yeah. of, you know, that that's just how that is sometimes. Um, do other shows keep those producer credits for after the show, not in the title sequence? I just know, having seen a video uh, done last year about the uh, the the company that put together the the Discovery credits, it was like passing reference was made to you know and the mandate was that all of these names had to be included which is very rare we had to have 38 names in there um which is whether that's the exact number now or not just the guy saying it's a it's an unusual number so whatever matt we had put out the call indeed the the seven red signals for uh itunes reviews helping uh, others find our podcast and we've gotten a trio of reviews. The first comes from Ryan one, two, three, four, five, zero. It's headlined. These guys know their Trek five stars. And it reads as a diehard fan of huge star Trek podcast network that shall not be named. I was surprised to find myself wanting a better star Trek discovery podcast. After several weeks of looking around this season, I found the best one right under my nose with Fantastic Geek. Their Marvel shows are also top-notch, so I should have known this podcast would be very well done. I love the deep Trek knowledge on display here. I wish them luck keeping up with the tidal wave of Trek content on the way. Well, listen, we are more than ready for the Trek tidal wave, or time tidal wave can we put time in front of it uh second i'm so glad that he he appreciates our deep uh star trek knowledge pete which was the one again that took place on the spaceship was that babylon five <laughs> which 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 one <laughs> that, that that was ba babylon five or babylon six i don't remember which star trek that was anyhow are there any more itunes reviews yes we have bwd uh, ESMO, I, I believe it's Wadesmo, I'm going to say. Uh, the headline is Love This Podcast, five stars. It reads, I could not be happier to have found this podcast. The insight into the episodes is fun and informative. And Fred from the Netherlands is quite entertaining. This will become a regular listen for me. The assist there from Fred bringing him, bringing him the flock from north and south east and west and uh certainly the kind words appreciated one more before we get to fred who by the way has never left a um an itunes review i'd be really interested in reading an itunes review left by fred uh, to be uh, fair pete i don't know that we in the united states would be able to see yeah necessarily there's, there's, can see that's that's been an issue for some of the bigger podcasts from people who used to have star trek after shows and then they got produced away from them. Yeah. Uh, last review left by J. Killen 9, Matt. The uh, headline is Essential. Again, five stars. 
I don't feel like I've watched an episode until I listen to the podcast. Perfect mix of fandom, entertainment, slash creative criticism, and social commentary. Make your life better and follow Fantastic Geek. Wow. Bold words there and uh, and uh, humbling words, but thank you for those words. Now, Pete, the time time has come for Time Fred. Hello, Matt and Pete. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 7. First off, one of the things I liked very much was that we saw how the turbo lifts work, and not from the inside this time, but from the outside. I think we have never seen this before in any Star Trek series. In the beginning of the episode, Burnham is going to Falcon and the Discovery is going to investigate the signal's residues. Well, I found it a little lame as a task for the for the Discovery. Fortunately, it proved later that the Discovery really had to do something much bigger. What was very funny was when Pike throws the black badge back to Tyler he is in the process of standing up and he doesn't look where he throws it. Fortunately, Tyler catches it. And I really wonder how often the actress had to do this to get it right. A little bummer was that this episode was only 40 minutes. I had the impression it was a little short, but then when I looked it up, it really was only 40 minutes, whereas episode 6 was 56 minutes. So... It's a quarter of an hour less. What I did like is that we got Spock quite early in the episode. I actually was expecting, knowing that he probably would be in this episode, that it would be in the last scene or something like that. What I found very touching was the interaction between Amanda and Sarek, where he is the logical Vulcan and but she confronts him with his attitude and If he is the loving husband, he should behave in a different way. And I think he understands. About halfway the episode, Sarek says, and I'm not prepared to lose both of our children on the same day. And I got the impression that this very logical function seems to get emotional at that moment. One other thing I liked is that we more or less got finally a name for the Section 31 ship. Well, it's not a name, it's a number, NCIA-93, and that's said by Burnham when she arrives with the shuttle. I just wonder if in NCIA, the CIA is reference to the old Earth CIA. Well, Section 31 could be a follow-up to the CIA, could be the new CIA. Later on, we have three unidentified ships, almost at the end of the episode, and they look quite like the Section 31 ship. So I think those three were also Section 31 ships. Nothing is said, of course, but my prediction is a Section 31. And then we have the revelation that Leland is responsible for the death of Burnham's parents. Well, we have to wait. What's that all about? A big nitpick was that when Pike is double on the bridge, and perhaps Tyler, because we see a Tyler that's a little bit translucent, so there could be a second Tyler as well, but all other bridge officers are not double. I think that's a little strange. Okay, that was all for now. 
Greetings, all the best. Fred from the Netherlands. Pete Fred speaking there about Pike's no-look throw. Yeah, he was really good in uh, the shooty hoops back on Earth with the the no-look passes. Fred also commenting, as we had earlier in the podcast, about the length of the episode, uh, and specifically in relation to last week's episode at the 56 mark. Uh, again, you know, we, we spoke earlier about the strength of this episode. Uh, I'm reminded of... Uh, the most recent season of Game of Thrones, the the loot train episode was 45 minutes long and people grumbled, I, I think myself a little bit included. But I would say just everybody remember this. When you have an episode, whatever you think an episode should be in terms of length, let's just say pick a number, you know, 50 minutes long. If it's longer than that, people don't go online and go, oh man, Pete, we got an extra 11 minutes. This episode was an hour and one minute long. Yeah. It's extra time. We don't do it that. It only ever seems to go one way and you have to remember too that if this was airing on broadcast it would be 44 42 minutes um so that we were four to two minutes short then go back and take four to two minutes off another episode that was longer and spread them out like people do this obsessively with game of thrones like they're not getting enough enjoy the dragons man they're finally here um and also, too, you, you know, you don't know what the, you don't know what, what was a worse version of this episode that they shot? Is the 45-minute version one where you go, oh, man, I can't believe the costumes didn't come together for that scene. It was only after we shot that we realized it didn't work. Or, holy crow, you know, the, the mood was just not right and all the actors were off a little bit. Or... Or we thought we were going to go in one direction, and then there was a quick rewrite. Now that now that scene's kaput. Whatever it is, you know, trust that this forty minute episode is the best version of this episode. Uh, I think of the season one finale. I would have loved more time. And here is Arium's medal, and here is Detmer's medal, and here is Owo's medal. Um, and indeed, Pete, I hope one day we get an extended cut of that episode. But in the meanwhile. Did that really impact things? No, we had to hurry up, get through the metal thing. Yay, there's Star Trek for the future. There's hope. The war is over. Boom, get to the Enterprise. So it's all in that service of the best story. Also, like Fred's uh, reference to the uh, Earth CIA, um, of course, of our country. So remains to be seen if there's a direct link, but it's uh, an interesting parallel. Every time you say CIA over Skype, somebody starts listening. Time uh, CIA. Time CIA, yes. Uh, they've been listening to Skype since the 1950s. What? Pete, how can people be in touch with you to talk about Star Trek? And not the CIA? <laughs> that would be on Twitter, Matt, at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,322 followers can't be wrong and while i'm personally on twitter as looking back lost do be in touch with the podcast comment on fantasticgeek.com check us out on twitter on instagram on gmail where we are fantastic geek as well if you live in these united states and you want to hear your voice on the podcast leave a message on our listener line 732-707-1815 or you could do what international star fred does record your mp3 send it to the email but wait pete there's more Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word, like it today. 
Well, Pete, for those listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we're going to be back in a couple days to talk the next episode of God Friended Me. If you're here for the trek, we will be back next weekend as we get to episode 208. Cannot believe how this season is flying by. And thank goodness, Pete, it's more than 10 episodes, more than 13 episodes, because still plenty of road to go. So with that, I will say, catch my badge to all our listeners and give you the final word. The deductive argument is one that aims to show its conclusions must be true. 